This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we go to art class as I visit with a New York-based contemporary art advisor and curator who's the author of the new book, How Creativity Rules the World. She was named by Art News as one of the innovators who gets to shape the art world. Coming up, I discuss the business of art and the art of business with Maria Brito. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hi, Pat. How are you? I'm quite well. I am curious about art collection because I think probably for most people, it's a rather intimidating thought, which is how do I get started? <laughs> what is the value of things? Is it going to hold its value? So how would you start to think about art collection as an investment? One of the reasons I went and opened my business and started this 13 years ago was because I myself at some point felt intimidated and confused. And that was when the art world and the art market was a little bit more manageable than the behemoth that became. And the best way to get people I would say comfortable with what it is happening in the art world is getting knowledge and information. So I would encourage people that if they really want to get into the art world or if they want to start a collection and the, the word collection itself can be a little bit intimidating, but once somebody has more than three things really is a collection as little as that may be. Information is available everywhere from big newspapers like the New York Times to specialized trade websites like Artnet, for example, where everybody who is in this business reads daily and most of the articles are for free. So if people are really wanting to get info, I would suggest that they start by gathering as much info as possible. And step two is going to galleries, your local galleries. It doesn't matter where you are because everywhere there is a gallery. So I think that going and asking questions and seeing who is the local artist that they are showing or the international or the artist from a different town they're showing and asking questions is an interesting way first to forge a relationship with that gallery and second to start dissipating doubts and not seem that you're getting there and you have absolutely no clue of what's going on and what kind of questions to ask and I think that this approach it in a way where you think that they want to give you the information because it is in the best interest of the gallery directors owners or salespeople to have more people to invite to their openings and to sell to and also you never know who you're talking to right like they never really know if you're going to be the person who's going to buy the entire gallery they don't know right and so it is not as intimidating as people think and 
it is a fascinating world. How do you know if something will hold value is a very interesting question and not one that is very easy to answer because art is unique and because of that, it's filled with an immense amount of variables that have to do with the artist. It has to do with the gallery who's representing the artist, the museums that are showing the art or acquiring the art, the collectors who are doing it and the merits of the art itself, right? Is it relevant? Will it, I still want to live with it 20 years from now or 30 years from now? Is it representing a moment in time right now, a piece of culture? And this is one of the reasons why my collectors want to collect art is in contemporary art in particular is because it represents the moment. It is what's important right now. And that ranges from technology to racial tensions or renaissance in different areas and parts of life and how people see things. Sometimes people acquire something to learn and that's very important. I think part of the evolution of human beings, obviously, on this earth is to grow and learn and to get different perspectives. If you keep doing what you're doing, and this is part of being creative, right? If you keep doing what you're doing and just seeing one point of view, it's very, very hard to be creative and it's very, very hard to evolve. So there are many ways to collect art. And I think that unfortunately, for the most part, people get trapped on, on the headlines of you know, the Wall Street Journal that says the Andy Warhol sold for 500 million bucks last night, right? right? And so that's very frightening. It is frightening even for the wealthiest people right. to think that, you know, those are the kind of money that you need to spend. But that's not true. That are wonderful art fairs that are mostly welcoming new collectors and emerging artists are, you know, the ones who show on those fairs through young galleries and things like that. And the price points can be as low as, you know, $1,000. Collecting art is not necessarily something that everyone is interested into, but I do know plenty of people who spend a whole lot of money in fashion that then goes to trash. And I think that if you were to think about what would last longer, I would put my money on art. So in the case of fashion, as you say, it becomes a trend and it becomes, it's it's at a garage sale some period of time. And then you have to wait 20 years for Paisley <laughs> to come back. Well, it's something like that. And I mean, there are fashion things that are classic and stay forever. But what I'm trying to say is that I know a lot of amazing women who are like, I spent 10,000 bucks this week on a handbag and a pair of shoes and two skirts. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wow, Hollywood people and people in finance in New York. And then I say, well, why don't you collect art? Oh, because I have no money for that. And so it's kind of, it's it's a very interesting proposition because I think that people don't understand yet that the barriers of entry are not that high in terms of money. And also they don't understand the long-term value. A lot of people the thing that stays the most with them and the longest is the art because they can pass it on to other generations. I mean, when you have a house and you put a lot of furniture, you tend to get rid of things, right? I mean, like the sofa, it got old or it got dirty mm-hmm. or the table doesn't fit anymore. But the art is one of those things that really stays in generations. Or, you yeah. know, you might sell it. I don't know. But it is one of those things that really stays longer. That's a really good perspective. And when you talk about gaining knowledge... It's, it's sort of like a person who first looks at a wine list and knows nothing about wine. They have to go through a process of learning and of questioning and tasting and learning from folks who encourage you to find out more. I know that you've had clients that range from hip-hop artists to Oscar winners to 
Broadway producers. In general, is there advice to also look at something that appeals to you? Or, I mean, how often is it something that people are thinking about it strictly as an investment or it's the aesthetic value to the collector? No, the aesthetics value is the first thing, uh, the tr okay. truth be told, because I approach my process and the way that I work with my clients is that I'm expecting that they are living with this art, that they are respecting what it is, that they really want to have an object that allows what I said before, education or representation of a moment in time, or it, there is a deep connection to what the artist does that resonates with your own life, your own past, your upbringing and things like that. And I think that obviously if you're going to live with it, you have to love it. And that is, uh, you know, the first, the main driver is that there is an aesthetic component and there is a gravitational pull. And when you look at that, you're like, oh, I'm so glad to live with this and I can have conversations with my children or entertain people and talk about this or is it just for my pure enjoyment and I think that if I sit in front of it every day and I keep checking on the little details I will keep be, I will be growing in my knowledge and in fact it's one of the ways that people can get more creative is looking at art every day and so that describing things to themselves about that piece of art but that's that's another thing so well, it's a little like personal style too you're communicating who you are by what you surround yourself by absolutely having a cocktail party or so you don't put something up that you hate no and uh, sometimes you can say things that aren't really the right words to say art speaks for itself it doesn't really have to communicate with a whole lot of words there are the images the way that our eyes see these images is like fractions of nanoseconds like how we like and how are we attracted to these things the wide variety of things of why people collect art are psychological reasons that go way deeper than what we can cover in a conversation like this right it has to do with a whole lot of factors that I have clients who only collect black artists, for example, because they feel that it is the time to support those artists. Mm -hmm. They feel it's the time that they actually feel this is what they want to show on their walls that are artists. There are clients that only collect female artists. And so it's just, but that doesn't have to be. I mean, there are clients who collect everything. And so it's, sure. it's all about who you are and what you want to say. And you said it very right. It's very much like personal style. What do you want to convey with the art that you have on your walls? It is speaks before you can speak. It reflects your personality and you don't really even have to say anything. But you do also have the opportunity to talk at length about these things because I always say that art has three ways of engaging is the eye, the heart and the mind. The eye, we know what it is. The heart is all the emotions. And the mind is because this contemporary artist and all the artists, honestly, throughout history are very, very smart people that are always giving us subtle messages from Da Vinci to Damien Hirst. They are all always telling us something and it's up to us to receive that message or not. And sometimes what it means to them at the moment they're painting it is one thing and what the discovery is for us as it is with uh, with music it can pull out of us healing powers trauma it, sometimes it can put us off i know that i sometimes in walking through a museum i'm as guilty as other people of going was that done by a three-year-old it, it creates a judgment that i feel a little bad about it is a two-way street and as a writer you know that once the product is out in the world, it's for the world and it's not yours anymore. And I think that's 
the intent of the artist is not always revealed. And even throughout history, when we look back at certain very important times, like when Velazquez painted Las Meninas, it has so many mysteries. Mm. And like people have written words uh, about, I, I'm surprised that there is no movie yet, but if anybody in the film industry is listening to this, please do a movie about <laughs> Las Meninas. Uh, I'm happy to consult on it because it's really <laughs> so interesting. So the artists are not always telling us everything because part of it is, we're taking a little bit away from the magic of art making. We don't reveal everything. That's why it is done. And that's if the artist wanted to keep the art for him or herself or themselves or whatever, then it wouldn't be on the market. But it is for the enjoyment of whomever gets it. And I get to interpret it my way. And sometimes I have had discussions with artists about their own work and they say, I had never thought about this, but it's so interesting that you bring it to my attention because now I can think about that you know art making in any field whether it is music or film or tv or art is a deep psychological process where the subconscious also gets to show many hidden things that you may not be able to analyze at a conscious level that's why it's so therapeutic too as you said you judge by your eyes and your experiences and yes, you can be extremely sophisticated or not. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it is your judgment and it is what that made you feel. I'm going to give you an opportunity here to make a short elevator pitch for that movie. Just tell me, <laughs> no, just tell me in a short paragraph why it's so intriguing to you. Listen, in the past 300 years, Las Meninas became the most researched piece of art way above Mona Lisa because when Velazquez painted this it was his magnus opus and he lived in the palace sort of a patronage situation well I mean the king his favorite painter was Velazquez so this was King Philip in you know 350 years ago in Madrid and he's like come live with us and have this you know studio for yourself and and Velazquez was also the art advisor. So he created this composition where the king and the queen are painted, but they are blurred in a mirror that makes them look like ghosts. And Velazquez painted himself. So it's one of the very rare occasions where he put himself in the painting and he's telling the world, I'm as good as these people, just so you know, you guys, right? Like he is actually giving a whole lot of power to the, because remember, a painter back then was a little bit like an artisan. And it was not like, oh my God, he's an artist who is making 10 million bucks a year. No, it was like, well, he's an artisan who works for the king, right? And he's elevating his craft and saying, F no, I right. am an author, I'm an artist, and I have the privilege to have seen firsthand what happens in this palace because he was there every day. So there is a whole of mystery first, why he painted the king and the queen through a mirror in a way that makes them look like a ghost, like, like they are like fading. Is he saying that the Spanish monarchy is destined to disappear, which at some point when Franco and this whole thing, right? So, or what is he saying? What, so he also painted gnomes and dwarves and dogs in the front of the, of the composition, like saying, this is a circus. Nobody wants this life, people. Seriously, uh, it's just, look. you look from the outside and it's so fabulous, but really it's a facade. It is a sham. So there are many, he never told us, right? He, yeah. he never told us he died. And 
there is a, a man who wrote a book about it. A man, you know, believed that the man died in the middle that he was writing the book. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right? It is very mysterious that there is a, this guy who was the first scholar on Las Meninas and Velasquez, and he was writing the book, and he died. So I would say that the Da Vinci Code, for example, was oh. such a successful after... Dan Brown wrote the book and it was such a successful movie, the first one at least. The sequels were not good. But uh, I think nobody has done the Velasquez Code. So Ah, there you go. All right. Well, the other thing that you bring up that's interesting is the self-portraiture. Because I know that when I was looking into some art, somebody said, hey, self-portrait of the artist has a certain cachet in addition to the art itself. So can you just tell me what that leap is for a collector? It's so funny because this conversation came up today with a client of mine whom I offered a self-portrait that has nothing to do with this. The The idea of self-portrait that you and I have is if I am an artist, I'll paint my face in a canvas and you would do the same, right? Like the way Velasquez did or, you know, all these old folks who are long gone, right? Rembrandt and whatnot. So self-portrait today might mean anything because it it doesn't mean that it's not valuable but if i am an abstract artist and i sell self-portrait i may just splash the canvas with stains and say this is the way i see myself and that is perfectly acceptable so yeah self-portraits have always had a very high rank in in art history and in the way that you collect because it is the ultimate essence of what an artist wants to convey about himself, herself, themselves. It's when, if you are in the world of trying to collect something and you come across a self-portrait that you like, you know, try to get it because, but first you have to like it. That's the, that's the trick, right? Try to get it because it is in the field and in the, you know, in the scale of, of rankings, it's an important work. Also, the fact that they often didn't do it that much. So once you invest in that and you look at yourself in the mirror or you look at, ref, you reflect on who you are, it takes a lot. It, there's an intensity to painting yourself. It's not like today's selfies where artists of the day had a Facebook page with a thousand pictures of themselves with their forearm in the picture. Oh. This is something that they really, it was somewhat torturous, I think, to paint themselves. And I only learned about it because I was a... Thomas Hart Benton fan. I like the mm-hmm. regionalist sort of work and was looking and there were certain things he painted frequently. There were trains and there were horses and there were cornfields. And in do, looking at all that, somebody said, oh, this self-portraiture is available and you should really think about it. And they were the ones that turned me on to the notion of if you like the artist, you should consider what they're doing in their self-portraiture. Well, also remember that they had to first look at themselves in a mirror, right? And they would have to have a canvas next so that they could remember every detail because we cannot ourselves see ourselves, right? I mean, we need to have a device, right? Or like, I mean, if you, if you were to be narcissist, you would look at yourself on a pond, right? And like you put yourself on the lake and look at your face, but it was e- way easier to do it with a mirror. Right. And this old, I mean... Tom is a much younger generation than if we're talking about the artists of the Renaissance, which was 600 years ago. And those people, you know, you don't, you don't find as many self-portraits from those 
old masters because first it was not easy second even if they were super egocentric they wouldn't do more than two or three you know because mm-hmm. also they were busy doing something else right i mean they wouldn't consider that painting themselves was what's going to make them rich or pay their bills or be able to finance their own projects. It's right. like, okay, look, I mean, the Medici's just wrote a check so that I can go and paint, you know, three or six canvases for their house in the Tuscan villas of whatever. I'm going to spend my time doing that and on my face. I can paint the ceiling of a church for the next <laughs> several months and make a little dough. Well, <laughs> or, yes. or paint a Madonna and child. When I went to Italy and I thought, there are a million of these Madonna and child. So that was a very popular combo. Yes, and they actually were able to give shape to religious imagery that we don't really know how those people look like. Jesus was a Jew who probably was very brown, not black, but brownish, right? I mean, and like this Europeans, I don't have anything against that and I'm not canceling them. I just want to highlight that. I don't have any problems with that. They were given an order by the popes and the Mm -hmm. churches, which was like, make them look like we do kind of so that they believe they exist and that we convert people. Right. I mean, yeah. that was like, there's so, an agenda. No doubt. There's an agenda. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't the artist's agenda, no. but, but they were commissioned as a part of the, let's call it propaganda of, of the Catholics. Yeah. Well, the truth is, is that in order to believe in a God, you want to think that he is human. Yeah. And looking after your people, your, yeah. who you are or what your culture or your heritage is. If your Bible is not in your language, then you don't think that that God is speaking to you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And also, it's very difficult to try to analyze. Actually, it's not only difficult, but completely wrong to analyze history of 600 years ago with the standards that we have today. That is, uh, like, in my opinion, that's the dumbest thing anybody can do, but, like, listen to each their own. Well, let me change the subject or turn the page since I want to talk about your book. The book you wrote is called How Creativity Rules the World. And I guess I would leap right into the question, how valuable is creativity in navigating through life? I think it's the number one skill that people may want to nurture and develop. And why I say that is because without creativity, there is no progress in humanity, right? I mean, if humans wouldn't have been creative, we would still be inside caves, cold and not wearing clothes or anything and just letting animals and predators eat us. And so by utilizing our brains and our capabilities to come up with ideas and materialize those ideas, what we're doing is providing progress, not only for our own lives, but for the lives of others. Because when we do things in our lives, we impact others, no matter if it is a family or if it's just, you know, or it's a group of people, it's a client, or it's a whole kind of universe. Like, you know, the way Apple impacts technology worldwide has obviously a much higher reach than this podcast. But that doesn't mean that this podcast is not impacting people because we are creating things and we're talking about things that other people are not. And so I think that creativity is the, again, like the number one skill for people to nurture, to develop, and to work on. And it's not just one thing. It's not like, oh my God, you're a creative genius and you were born with all this. That's not what it is. It is a, an amalgamation of different habits and attitudes that people want to be engaged and want to present 
to whatever it is that they do, like risk taking, like being vulnerable at certain moments, like being able to speak your truth, but being able to do it in a way that helps others and being open and curious, open to experience is the number one thing that every researcher and every psychologist who is in the field of researching creativity from a point of view of science reminds us that without being curious and open to receiving information, we just cannot move forward at all. And we cannot be creative because there's nothing more detrimental for creativity than to keep doing the same things that you have been doing all your life. Yeah. And and you talk about in your book that curiosity is reclaiming the child's mind, which is that maintaining an inquisitive nature and asking lots of questions which is always really helpful, like not to ever be afraid of that insatiable curiosity of question asking. Absolutely. And I think that the, it, this has so many different angles and applications because if you are curious, not only will you keep asking questions and potentially you will get to great answers, but also you are open to different points of view. And different points of view are very, very important. It doesn't mean you have to agree. That doesn't ma- it doesn't mean that you have to give up on your convictions or beliefs. It doesn't matter. It's not that you are just changing your values. It means you're willing to listen. You're willing to get information. And it's, it's not like Henry Ford. You can only get one car as long as it is a black Ford, right? It's not like that. It is, I'm open to listening to what you have to say as long as it's respectful and you know, you're not physically or mentally attacking me. I'm happy to listen to you. What do you have to say? And that goes, it's a very, very broad statement, you know, but that goes from from people in companies, right? I mean, like the interactions between a boss and the team. It goes into politics. Why are we so polarized? Mm. Because we don't want to listen to anybody, right? I mean, we have been siloed into these groups. And if like, if you move out of your group, you're a traitor. Or like, if you look on the side to like, listen to someone else. I mean, yeah, definitely radicalized people are never going to be willing to listen or talk to anyone who's not with them. But I think that there is room for smart conversations in any, and I'm saying this, I'm saying politics because it is a very clear example of what I'm trying to say. But again, uh, th- a it does, lot of it does, things polarize us. I, I totally agree. But it, it doesn't mean that it has to be that way. It means that why are we not listening more to this people who are in the intersections, let's say, of science and technology? Why are we not open to bringing, let's say, artists to the boards of directors of public companies, which is something that has been taught about. It has been talked about a lot. So the more diverse your group, the better the outcome and the better the product and the better the project will be. If it is just one type of people with one type of background and they all think the same, I can guarantee you, Pat, put money out right now. It's not going to turn out right. It won't. It's just very difficult to one of the most incredible experiments in the history of Humanity is the foundation of the United States. And if you think of the immediate diversity that happened, whether the means were right or not, you can realize why this country grew to be the power it was and it is. It was all this mix of things happening with very different people 
opening borders to foreigners, allowing people to come in, that helped. Whether the means were right, that's a whole other conversation. But it, the diversity, if people consider that, it'll give you a lot of answers. If all the people in the top you know, positions are diverse, no, that's not true. But everybody else who allowed mingling and diverse opinions and learning and different cultures and people who came from Europe and people, then you can see a lot of the progress that we have accomplished is rooted on that. We all have creative potential. Each individual, this is one of the things that I took from your book. And I just wonder, what does a person's mindset need to be if they want to make a living in the creative arts? It's got to be some sort of fearlessness about what you have to say. And the, the contrary to what a lot of people have thought, there are no starving artists. And I mean, there are, but that's not the majority. Honestly, there has never been a better time for people to be a visual artist because there is enormous demand. Prices keep going up and people keep buying and there has been more and more access that has been granted to people through Instagram. And the access is not just in the United States, but it is in Asia and it is in Europe and it is everywhere. So this fearlessness about putting your message out there is like the number one thing that you have to do, right? It's like, how do you actually feel so convinced about what you're doing that you have no fear of putting it out? And I think that we have been blessed, honestly, with all this easy access technology features that did not exist 11, 12 years ago. Instagram did not exist. I mean, now people are like, oh, but privacy. Yes, all these things are a problem, but also you have to think about all the access that all these artists and galleries and people like me have gotten through putting out there in the world through a platform that is free. Here's what's interesting. To show your portfolio on Instagram, everything that ranges from your earliest work to now or something that is your very specific vision, that used to be that you had to literally carry all your art in a portfolio to a place. And it was really, really hard to get around and, and, and also to continue to do your work because you were spending time trying to sell it, you know, yeah. it just took you away from making it. But a thing like Instagram, you can get an amazing in-depth view of somebody's work in a very short period of time and immediately start asking questions and, and even purchasing because it's right there for everybody to take a look at. So I don't think any artist is necessarily uh, too upset about the privacy issue where it comes to showing their work. The current conditions have made everything easier for people. Now there is a whole other level of artists who work with NFTs and digital art, which is a whole other thing. And that has allowed people to make money in crypto uh, it, before it crashed and whatever, right? So first, we have to really acknowledge that it is not the world of starving people to begin with, right? If anybody wants to go, they have to know that there is a whole lot of money to be made in that, that the overhead is very, very small for an artist and that they have so many ways to really capitalize on their creativity and it's out there available to them. And the second thing that people should consider is that being an artist is a vocation, 
it's not a career. It's something that you have to want to do, that you can't stop yourself from doing it, right? Like the most successful artists that I know are people who just can't stop making things, right? They are constantly like either they have a pad and they are drawing or they are running some sort of collaboration with a brand and they are painting. And it's not like, oh, let me just wake up on Sunday and do three brush strokes and then go, right? It is something that you, and that doesn't have to be since you were a child. I know very also plenty of artists and throughout history who didn't really have that enormous artistic inclination, but they found that when they were teenagers and they decided to go to art school or they didn't go to school, but they just had it in them mm -hmm. and they just started exploring it. So it doesn't, it, it's not that. And that's why I also don't believe that you are born with this. You're born as a magician, right? Like you're born as a creative genius. No, it is something that you could have very well you know, being born like Mozart, who could compose things at the age of six, that's fine. But you could also be someone who realized like Grandma Moses, who was painting on a farm in her, you know, like her farm, like little things on weekends because she was a right. farmer, right? And then- And she didn't really take off or start till she was in her 80s or something, right? In her 70s, yeah, 70s, in her yeah. 70s. I mean, she was doing it since she was really young, but never really professionally. It was her fun thing to do until this guy found her work um, at a pharmacy and I don't know when and went crazy and took it to MoMA. And so like there are many ways to actually be an artist, but if somebody wants to take this professionally, they have to be very mindful that it is something that you must really enjoy and love because also this type of energy that you put into making things can be felt. This is what I was talking to you at the beginning about the subconscious part of what the artist puts out in the world, you may be able to do very beautiful things, but if you're not 100% committed to that work, other people are going to feel it too, right? And I don't know to what extent they will be inclined to buy things. There are great people like David Lynch, who is like, oh, I am an incredible filmmaker, but I'm also an artist. And he is good at both things, mm -hmm. but his main thing is making movies and TV shows. And then the art that he makes is wonderful. It is for his enjoyment. He can sell it. He can have exhibitions, but that's not where he's committed 100% of the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does also take a certain amount of discipline because you actually have to sit down to do the craft. You have to be doing that. And also you mentioned Grandma Moses and others. Volume is important. Yes. To constantly be creating content. Essentially, you're building an arsenal of things so that when there is discovery or when there is interest, you're not suddenly having to sort of crank out the same thing over and over. There's some, I guess, some autonomy if you're doing it before you're recognized because then it's coming from your, as you say, from the heart. And also remember, it takes time to really be great. It's like the, it, it is in the honing of this talent that things get better and better. And that's not discounting that artists, young artists nowadays are so freaking good right off the bat. They are so good because they are exposed to so much visual information and they have it at the fingertips of a phone. Before that, they would have to go to seven museums to be able to see. And what they are seeing just scrolling mm, is, is a whole lot of information for them, right? It's visually stimulating and they are very, very good. But the thing is, the more they are in front of those canvases or the more they are with those 
brushes or those pencils or whatever, the better and better they get. And the, it has, the path to greatness has been shortened almost everywhere mm. because these kids are getting, are very, very brilliant. And it's like, they have this brains like almost on asteroids, like the asteroids of social media and technology and whatnot. And so it's, it's easier. It's coming at them very fast. Yes. They're taking it in quickly and the subconscious is learning at an accelerated rate. And they are a part of an ecosystem that is supportive of what this new thing is. I mean, people are valuing art more and more. People want to live with art more and more. People want to be a part of the conversation. The cultural conversation also is very important right now. This is because, again, what I was saying in the beginning is that we have falling in love with these artists because they say things that maybe we're not that great expressing or because maybe these are the things that we feel and we find a direct expression on what they are putting on those canvases. This type of societal, cultural engagement. Yeah, you're, re you're referencing empathy and empathy yes. and creativity. Why are they soulmates? What is that empathy process that helps us understand that it's necessary to build a relationship with the viewer. Listen, nobody can do anything alone. And empathy is a cornerstone of creativity because if you don't know how your customers feel, like your readers or your audience or your collectors or the people who receive your product feel, you can't really do things that they will gladly consume. And that is why a lot of companies or TV shows or whatever fail because they are not in tune with the feedback that they are receiving from the world. And this is something that is precious and it requires a very fine psychology from the person who's putting out the content, the product, the business to be able to understand and tweak and adjust. When Steve Jobs used to tell us, give them something they don't know yet they want. He was right, but he was also paying attention. Like he, it's not like he was like, throw things at them that they don't know that they want. No, he's like, okay, well, look, let me see. People like to hear music, but Walkmans are very cumbersome and huge. And the Discman too. And the MP3 doesn't really work for people to carry it portable. So can we do something else? I mean... It is, he was paying attention to what people want. He was empathizing with them. They like to have beautiful things. Nobody would like to have a thing that looks like a brick and is like seven pounds, you know, attached to their jeans. So right. yeah, he was, he was building the future, but he was basing it in the past and in real time information that he was observing in the world where he lived. We want the future to be created by thinkers and by entrepreneurs and by anybody who is in the business of creating something, but we want them to listen to us, the consumers, and to tweak to our needs and our, you know, our feelings. And we want the same thing from everybody, right? We want to be heard. Whether you're making films or television or visual art, there is a certain amount of failure. Whether you're listening or not, you're taking risks. So what's the importance of embracing failure when you're working in art? Failure is just something that didn't work out. A lot of people, unfortunately, tend to put failure as a personal thing. Like, I failed. What I try to do 
is I separate the failure and I put it into into the project, right? I, it's like, well, this thing didn't work out. It wasn't me who failed. Right. It was that thing. And these are clues that tell you, well, if something failed, I really went far enough. I went far enough because it wasn't well received. Maybe people were not ready yet for that. Maybe it just gives you information as well saying, well, maybe I didn't listen to what they wanted. Maybe I really did take such a big chance that I wasn't paying attention and I disregarded. And it's okay, you know, because a lot of, a lot of failed projects, what they give you is more, again, more information and other pieces that you can use in your own business to deconstruct from them, from that failure and utilize them in the future for something else. And that is the best thing that a failure can give you is a, a teaching, a piece of something that you can build upon. Well, it's an evolution. As you say, if it's the next stage of the rocket that gets you a little further, I'm really not a fan of the, when I hear people talk about an epic fail, is that they seem to put so much weight on it not going right. And I think that sometimes the only way that you can correct a golf swing is to take a few more swings, just hold it the grip differently, hit it a little underneath. That goes the same. And I'm not a fan of thinking about what do they want, meaning what does the consumer want? I like to think, what is it that I have to say that may be universal? Mm-hmm. That if if I write about regret or I write about my vulnerability, what is it in another human being that they will connect to whether that's grief or loss or joy, that to me seems to be the universal truth in art is like try to get to the core of something that is relatable to others. Well, I mean, you've said it and people tend to measure and compare themselves to others through this highly curated lives, the Instagram lives where everything is perfect and everybody is on a yacht and like, the Mediterranean sipping (laughs) champagne and whatnot. So, and people look flawless and you have no idea how much Photoshop may have gotten into that picture or whatever, then people feel very inadequate. And that is a a problem because it is taken away from people, their willingness to take a chance, their willingness to speak the truth. And that's why many, many things from fashion to technology products start looking the same. It's like, wow, instead of being creative and coming up with your own thing, you are just giving me the same product, the same service, the same thing without really a differentiating point of view that makes me think that it's worth my while and time to spend my money with you. And we have to be very careful with that because if you think about how failing and how being real is a powerful way for evolution and growth, but only but also to connect with people, you are missing out on a huge opportunity to show other ways, you know, that there is not perfection, that there is not just like, you know, that the path to success is not a straight line upwards all the time, right? I mean, there are plateaus, there are declines, there are, wow, a super gigantic ramping up, and then it might be just free falling for a long time. You don't know, but it's not necessarily this, like straight, beautiful, polished, upward curve. I mean, also people need to understand that if you are ready to burn yourself out, yes, you can go all the way and not sleep and be mean to your employees and like, you know, because you want to get things on a specific deadline. And then, so what is the price, 
really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the price to pay with your health, with people around you hating it, like or in hating you, right? With like having to recruit and fire people all the time because no. So these are all very profound things that people have to ask themselves if they are worth continuing with certain behaviors that they've been talked about for so long. But I think that with the pandemic, they just were shown in the surface with the great resignation and people saying, I'm not taking this anymore. Or people saying, I don't want to ever go back to an office because I can still do the same thing working from home. These are very, very important pieces of information that people at all levels really have to consider whether you are in the mix of perpetuating cycles that belong to you know the 19th century or whether you are someone who you are not feeling that you're reaching your maximum capacity for creativity and joy because you're part of this ecosystems that don't let you flourish and you're speaking a little bit to purpose and to passion in the acknowledgement of the book you thank your sons uh daniel and oliver for reinforcing the idea that we are all in this world to fulfill a creative purpose where we can only be whole if we are happy doing what we love. That's the specific inspiration that you had there. And I think that that's very telling because you made a conversion from being a lawyer to being an art curator and a helping people with their collections. And that's a pretty big leap of faith to make that change. And that pursuit was done, I think, purely for your desire to be at the epicenter of where your joy is. Absolutely. And I am shocked that you let read the acknowledgments, but thank you for doing that because nobody goes to the acknowledgments. And you very well said I was I was an attorney and I practiced corporate law in New York City for about nine years after graduation. And at the beginning it was like, okay, this is what I have to do because, you know, I already committed to all this and I went to law school and I passed the bar exam and I'm making so much money, right? I mean, lawyers in New York City, when you start, these big law firms own you pretty much. So they mm. pay you a whole lot of money. And time passed and uh, things were relatively okay. I, you know, I got married and we were able to buy an apartment. You know, the things that money can buy, but they there is a ceiling, right? I mean, money's wonderful and I welcome it and I want everybody to be as rich as Elon Musk if needed be, right? But there is a ceiling of the things that money can buy and joy and, and fulfillment is one of the things that it, that money cannot necessarily buy. When I had my first child and I started pondering my life, I was like, I really hate this law firm. It has nothing to do with the lawyers. It has to do with me because I just, I'm not caught for this. And, you know, I was a pretty artistic child. My parents are very conservative people. I was born and raised in Venezuela. And when I moved to the States to go to Harvard Law, which was a dream, honestly, and I am so grateful that I was able to leave a country that then went on free falling after that. You know, I was able to stay in the U.S. and it's a place that has really adopted me like a child of its own when i had my had daniel my first one i said oh gosh i just can't really show this child that life is all about going and grinding and suffering and never coming back home because you never really know and and like 
your schedule becomes completely unpredictable and it's for something I don't even enjoy, right? I right. mean, if like, if you were to say, well, the silver lining is that I love it. No. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not love any of that. Not one bit. And I said, well, it's now or never because this baby, actually, I went back after he was born and I stayed in that law firm for about six months after my maternity leave. And I said, no, man, this is really no life. And I need to use my, my gifts and my skills and my talents to do something good in the world that is not going to be financing venture capitalists. That's not, I mean, nothing wrong with that, but that's not my, that's not my mission, right? My mission has to do with beauty, with culture, with access, with enlightenment. It has to do with me sharing the knowledge that I have built and acquired about art teaching others how to collect and, and curating things. If I cannot be an artist, because I wanted to be a singer when I was little, if I cannot be that, I'm going to make it as close as possible in a way that it's elegant, that I love, and that brings joy to the people I touch. And it was a huge leap of faith. It's very, very risky. And when you own your own business, you never really know what you're getting into. It's a whole lot of traps and minefields and things and problems, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I love them. Those are things I love and I do them with passion and gusto. Yeah. And you also mentioned that uh, your grandfather had a big impact on, on you. Would you mind sharing some of that moment of inspiration that came from your grandfather, Enrique? Yes. When the pandemic hit, well, you know, we were on lockdowns. So I'm in New York City. It's like the city turns into this ghost town and whatever. And I had never had so much time in my hands because I had always been a very busy art advisor and I was traveling the world constantly and I had many clients in different cities so I had to be with them and go to art fairs and this and that and with all that time my grandfather passed in 2004 when he was in his late 40s I had not been born yet he was kidnapped in Venezuela by the guerrilla and the guerrilla took him in the jungle for one month and asked for ransom and whatnot and this was like complicated and my my grandfather's family and my grandmother paid for the ransom it was all the money they had he was he was freed he returned but he found himself with no money and he had to like build a whole different life from scratch because all the money had been used for his freedom when I remember him, right, like he never really complained like the past and it was golden and now it's like less or, you know, he was very, very resourceful. The inspiration that I received from my grandfather is that during the pandemic, it was maybe the month of April or May. So it's like two months in this uncertainty. And I decided to, for whatever reason, Google my grandfather's name, who had absolutely no relationship to the internet because he died in 2004 when he was 80. So, and I don't know why. And I, the first thing that comes up is a video that is in the archives of Reuters showing the day that he was released from his kidnap. Oh, interesting. With no audio because the audio wasn't synced. And that was shocking because I had never seen this video because like, Nobody's like, oh, let's all gather together to watch the video when you were, you know, released from your kidnap. Nobody does that, first of all. Second of all, there was no way for my 
mother or my family, my immediate family, to have stored that video because there were no iPhones, no, no videos on YouTube, nothing that did not exist 40, 50 years ago. And I just was blown away by this encounter. And it was the thing that prompted me to write the book because I was thinking for so long, wow, you know, what is the meaning of all this for me in particular, right? I mean, we know that we know what happened. We know that we are still battling with COVID and pandemic and like other, you know, maladies that are populating in the world. But I was like, what does this mean for me? Is this a message? I mean, and so I thought a lot about how resourceful my grandfather was, how resilient, how happy, how he was infused with with life and with a positive way of seeing the most dramatic things. When I asked him, and I was probably 10 or 12, how was your kidnapping experience? He said, well, he told me a little bit of the story. He He never really, he was not a guy who liked to be the center of attention. And he said, you know, I'm very grateful because they fed me and they didn't kill me. So this was kind of like his his closure of the whole thing is like, I'm still here with you, my granddaughter, telling you a story of something that happened, you know, 15 years ago. And I can say it and I have food in my table. I have a house. I have a family. Mm-hmm. I am doing well. You know, I'm just really fine. And that was the big thing. This man had to sleep with a straight jacket for 30 days. He had three guys with rifles around him and he was in a jungle. He just, you know, he didn't really know where he was and that did not kill him and it did not deter him and it never made him bitter. And it never, it's on the contrary, I think that fueled his creativity. He, he bought a printing company. I mean, he was a great dude. And so he was my inspiration for this book. And the book is fantastic. Uh, you cover habits and tools and ways and means, mindset, and you give us all permission to own our creativity and to reach for our full creative potential. So I'm going to encourage folks to visit your website, which is mariabrito.com, and find out more about you. I appreciate you investing the time today to share your insights and inspiration. Well, thank you, Pat. It's been my pleasure. You're a fantastic host. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity.